1: The stock market isn't always a friendly place. It can be volatile, painful, and just downright difficult. There are tons of big picture problems that can derail any rally. Problems you might not have any idea about until they hit us. That's why I'm so adamant about trying to make you a better investor. I wanna teach the tricks of the trade so that when the market turns negative, When it gets hostile, you'll be prepared. You'll know what to do. I spent my entire career analyzing the way stocks trade, searching for patterns of what's worked for me and what hasn't. And from those observations, I put together a set of rules, rules that are designed to help protect you from the worst mistakes you can make in both good markets and bad. As much as I sometimes might seem like an unhinged uh, lunatic, the truth is that I'm all about discipline. You're going to make mistakes in this business. It's inevitable. But if you stick to your discipline, if you stick to the rules, that should help you minimize your losses and maximize your gains. So let's talk about discipline. I'm always telling you to buy best of breed companies, even if you have to pay up for those stocks. I use that phrase constantly because it's just that important. Why should you try to identify the stocks of the best run companies with the best prospects in each industry? Let me flip that on its head. Why is owning best-of-breed even a question? When you're shopping for a car, you buy best-of-breed or the best you can afford. It's not even an issue. We pay up for the highest quality brand because we know that a brand, a good brand, signifies reliability. It tells us that we can expect a higher level of service, a quality of ownership that will make your your drive safer and easier for years to come. The idea that you would purposely try to buy a worst-of-breed car, it's downright crazy, isn't it? Nobody says, I'll take the one without the airbags. It's uh, cheaper. So why is it that so many people seem to think differently about the stock market? Why are we drawn, say, to the penny stocks that are constantly being talked about on Twitter? I think it's because uh, many of us simply can't resist what we perceive as a bargain. Emphasis on the word perceived. Here's the thing. If you go hunting for cheap stocks of low-quality companies in the market, it's more likely to lead to losses than to gains. Now, let me be clear. I'm all about bargain hunting, but a stock is only a bargain if the underlying merchandise is actually worth owning. A real bargain is when the market gets hit with a sudden sell-off taking down everything and you can pick up the stocks of best of breed companies at a discount. You know what's not a real bargain? Buying junk merchandise just because it seems cheap. That's why whenever I get asked about a low-quality stock in the lightning round, you'll hear me say something like, hey, Ski Daddy, if you like blah, 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 you'll love Johnson & Johnson because that's best to breed. Sure, j j is probably not going to give you any short-term pyrotechnics, but it's a kind of long-term story you can count on. It's an industry leader with a great balance sheet, long history of dividend boosts, and a strong pipeline of new products in the works. What makes it best a company be the best to breed? Well, like the late great Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart once said about pornography, I know it when I see it. But to help explain this concept to you, when I say best of breed, I'm talking about well-managed, high-quality companies like a Johnson & Johnson. If you can get J&J on sale, great. If you can't get it on sale, I'd still prefer you to pay up for something like J&J then try to pick up some penny stock just because it seems cheaper. Remember, at the end of the day, there are very few genuine bargains out there when it comes to second- or third-tier players. Their stocks may look cheaper than the top dogs, but that's because they deserve to be cheaper. The businesses are worth less. Don't worry about paying a higher price earnings multiple for a best breed business. It may seem more expensive, but in addition to usually being the better investment, you're also buying peace of mind own best-of-breed companies, you almost never regret it. Now, once you find yourself a best-of-breed company, the kind of company uh, with a story you believe in, I got another important rule for you. High-quality companies represent value, and giving up on value is a sin. I see many people throwing in the towel on companies that have real assets and real worth just because their stocks aren't working right here, right now. It drives me nuts. Look, patience is a virtue. If you have reason to believe in a business, don't dump its stock just because it's not getting any traction for the moment. You're not a hedge fund manager. You don't need your positions to show a gain every quarter, or every month, or even every day. You don't have investors who'll pull their money from your portfolio because one particular qu- position is taking too long to pay off. That means you can afford to wait for these stories to play themselves out. That's your advantage over the hedge fund manager. I say this because you'll be tempted to sell even best of breed stocks at times. You may correctly identify value, but this market can make it very difficult to stick to your guns, even with a company that you truly believe in. When you own a stock that's going down, you're going to feel compelled to give up on it. I know that. But in many cases, if you're done your homework and you have conviction in the underlying business, well, that urge to sell will be a mistake. And look it happens to all of us. In 2016, I did an interview with, with Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, after his stock had plummeted from 136 to 93 in a fairly short period of time. Remember this? Backing up and looking at the larger picture, we're in great markets. We have huge opportunities
0: geographically. We've got great innovations in the pipeline. People love our products. They love using our services. All of this to me equals great opportunity. Now your viewers have to decide what they wanna do,
1: obviously, but this is how I feel. Wow, people are giving up on Tim left and right. I looked at the stock, which was selling at an incredibly low price multiple. I looked at the consumer loyalty, 99%, the service revenue stream, and the cash position. I said, what the heck is the point of selling this particular stock that makes the greatest products of all time? That may sound like a no-brainer, but there are tons of Apple skeptics out there constantly arguing that the company's best days are behind it. Presenting these surveys of Apple's component suppliers is evidence that the business is in decline. Time after time, they've been wrong, yet they get away with it. I don't want you to fall prey. Sure enough, telling you to buy Apple at 93 turned out to be a fabulous call because the insane amount of negativity gave you a wonderful opportunity to pick up a stock that was terrific at a major discount. The key here, though, is that Apple is a high-quality company, a best-of-breed company. So when its stock came down, well, you know that it's getting cheaper. Selling Apple at 93 would have been a classic example of giving up on value. And you would have missed a huge move, which is why giving up on value is such a huge mistake so often. Here's the bottom line. Don't be afraid to pay up for the best-of-breed stocks. They may have higher price earnings multiples than the stocks of lower-quality companies, but they're also much less likely to blow up in your face. The best-of-breed premium is worth it. Oh, and once you find a company that's best-of-breed with a story you believe in, don't let the bear scare you away from it, even if the stock is temporarily broken. Patience is a virtue, giving up on value. Well, that's a sin. Let's go to Fred in Ohio. Fred!
2: Jim, I understand that when a company buys back stock, that it can retire the shares or hold them in inventory. My question is, does it make a difference to us in evaluating a stock and a buyback, which approach the company is taking, and how do we find out which the company is doing?
1: Well, I mean, what we do with a true buyback is what we call their crunch in the stock. And when they crunch the stock, you're fine. If they're buying the stock and then selling it again, boy, that would be something I wouldn't want to be in. So I think what you need to know is if it's crunched, it's a buy. Carlos in Missouri, Carlos.
2: Big bad booyah from Southwest Missouri, Jim. Longtime fan.
1: I like that. What's happening? <laughs>
2: Hey, my question today is about fundamental investing uh, with all the micro trading and the algorithm trading and whatnot. Do you think that, that that's eventually going to go away, just investing on the fundamentals?
1: I think the fundamentals are going to will out. And I say that because we have found, start, uh, we have started to see periods of time where Uh, a best-of-breed stock is doing much better than a worse-of-breed stock in a particular sector. And that didn't happen for a long time, and it's happening now. I think fundamentals matter more than ever. Let's go to Gregory in Maryland.
2: Please, Gregory. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. My question is, after a stock run-up like Apple right now, at what
0: increase percentage point should I take profits so that I won't be slaughtered like a pig?
1: Um, Well, you know, in some of my books, I've been saying when a stock goes up 25%, take a little bit off. And that's what I've been doing for my charitable trust. Not a lot. But the main thing is when a stock doubles, you take out your costs and then you let the house money ride. Listen up. I want you to survive and thrive in any market. I want you to be the best investor you can be. And that means not being afraid to pay up for the best of breed stocks. They're worth it, better than all the rest. Get out your pencils, Kramer. I'm coming right back with more rules of engagement. Stick with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag madtweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer, you are super, you are awesome.
1: I'm a first time investor. Thank you for inspiring me
0: to get in the game.
1: Your show is the best, I am so glad you're on TV. I want you to
0: know that you have transformed me. Thank you, Kramer. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's TDAmeritrade.com/apps.
1: How can you keep track of a confusing market? Let me give you some advice that rarely ever steered me wrong. There are two things I want you to watch. One, macro, big picture, and one, micro, company specific. Let's start with the big picture. If you want to know where the stock market might be headed, I say keep your eyes on the bonds. Look, I know the bond market is boring as all get out, but it's much larger than the stock market. And more importantly, it's very important to the overall direction of stocks. Back in the day when I was running my old hedge fund, I'd always call in from the road the same way. If I had to be away from my desk, I'd begin every phone conversation by asking, where are the bonds? That's so how much it mattered to me on a day-to-day basis. Yet stock market investors seemingly forget the bond market all the time. They forgot in 2000, even though the bond market told us the economy was softening right t- near the dot-com peak. They forgot bonds in two- 2001, when it was clear that interest rates on cash were far too competitive versus stocks, and would this cause a massive sell-off? They forgot it when the Fed raised rates 17 times in lockstep fashion in the lead-up to the financial crisis, precipitating the worst downturn since the Great Depression. Over the past decade, there were countless uh, taper tantrums, what we call them, where some Fed official will strike a hawkish tone, and everyone freaks out that rates are headed much higher too quickly. More recently, we've had a kind of a schizophrenic relationship with bonds. When the yield on the 10-year Treasury started breaking out above 3% in early 2018, everybody panicked. Yet when it pulled back, far too many investors were quick to forget about the bond market. Look, it should never come as a surprise that long-term interest rates are rising or falling. Bonds can punch your portfolio in the face if you aren't paying attention. A lot of people don't pay attention because, as I said, bonds are boring. That's why I say don't forget bonds. Always keep those bond prices and interest rates right in front of you. When I was coming up at Goldman Sachs, I was trained to focus on bonds because bonds are the true competition to stocks, the competition I most fear. When short-term interest rates, the ones set by the Fed, go sky high, you have to expect that dividend stocks, the stocks of companies with high yields like American Electric Power, Southern, they'll sell off. When long-term interest rates rise, the one to watch is the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Then you have to start being wary that all stocks might suddenly be worth less than they were trading before. It's simple. If the bond market competition gets more attractive, the stock market gets less attractive. This is indeed a zero-sum game. Now, you should be especially worried about rising long-term rates that are caused by a pickup in inflation. That's a toxic brew. Inflation eats away at the value of long-dated assets like equities because their future earning streams will have less purchasing power. And higher interest rates don't just make bonds more attractive. They also make it more expensive for banks to lend. And that puts a damper on the economy. <laughs> For a long time, we had an ideal environment for stocks, low inflation and low interest rates. That's an incredibly benign backdrop, and I don't want it to lull you into a false sense of security about the dangers of a big spike in rates. That's why you have to watch the bond market. You know what? Let me put this another way. If this were basketball, I'd be saying that if you just watch the man with the ball, let's call him Citigroup, and you don't watch what the other team is doing on defense, the bonds, there's no way you're going to get to the basket. The man without the ball, the bond market, can determine the stock. Action every time. Many people who got in this game in the last decade still don't even know what bonds are. Yeah, that's how benign they've been. They're trouble when you say that the bonds went up today. They think that means interest rates are going up rather than what it really means, which is that interest rates are going down. If you don't understand how bonds work, you're going to be at a severe disadvantage when it comes to investing in stocks. So keep your eye on the ball and the bond. That's right. The bond then without it. Okay. What else do you need to watch? on the mac on the micro level now micro meaning the company specific level okay you need to be very cautious when you see unexplained resignations by key executives to put it bluntly when the chiefs resign Maybe you should go, to. Yep. when you see a CEO step down for no discernible reason, you should uh, presume something is wrong and do some selling. Shoot first, ask questions later. I've sold stocks simply because the CEO or the CFO, the chief financial officer, resigned. And if uh, it turned out to have uh, jumped the gun, uh, if there was nothing wrong, I'd simply buy the stock back. But in my whole career, whole investing career, you know how many times I can recall that a CEO left for an undisclosed personal reason and a stock was still worth buying right there? Off the top of my head, once... Visa. I've racked my brain to come up with other examples. I just can't think of any other because that's how uncommon they are. Why? Simple. CEOs don't quit for personal reasons. Not if they want to keep their bonuses. CFOs don't quit for personal reasons either. These are fabulous jobs. You're paid a fortune. You don't get to be a chief executive officer by being devoted to your family. Well, you know. Nobody gets one of these jobs without giving up a great deal of what most people enjoy about life. Things like family, friends, nights out. Competition for these positions is so fierce that when you finally land one, you don't up and leave. Not for no real reason. When C-suite executives leave for undisclosed personal reasons, it's almost always because there's something wrong at the company. Hence my rule. When high-level people quit a company, something's wrong. Aha, you say. I know a CEO who quit because he had an epiphany about climbing K2. Or I know a CFO who left because she wanted to spend more time with her family. Fine. Of course there are exceptions. At some point, somewhere, A CEO really will step down just to spend more time with his kids. But here's the thing. When you're investing in the stock market, it's not the exception that matters. It's the rule. There will always be some situations where it's a mistake to sell a stock when senior executives leave. I don't care because most of the time selling will be the right decision. This is the kind of rule that helped keep me in the game at my old hedge fund. It's all about helping you avoid losses. That's what matters. And one way you do that is by not taking unnecessary risks, like betting on companies where the CEO just resigned for undisclosed personal reasons. The bottom line, if you want to get a handle on the stock market, you need to watch what's going on with the bonds. That should be obvious at this point. But it's something people tend to forget. And when you're looking at individual companies, remember that unexplained high-level executive resignations equals sell. Giorgio in Illinois. Giorgio. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for all that
2: you do. I truly appreciate it. Oh,
1: thank you. My question is, what percentage of a portfolio should be in index funds and how in cash with the volatility of these future markets? Okay, well, a lot of that depends on your age. For instance, uh, by the way, index funds are fabulous because you don't have to do the work on individual stocks and they give you a great diversification. Uh, when you're a young age, you want to have 100% in stocks. As you get older, you want to take that money out and take the money out. I've got in uh, Get Rich Carefully and in um, really, literally all my books, I talk about the different stages. But as you get older, you got to raise some cash. That's the best way to put it. Let's go to Blake in Nebraska, please. Blake.
0: Booyah, Jim. Booyah. With the current market volatility, what advice do you have for the young investors out there compared
2: to other older investors?
1: Ride it out. Young people have their whole lives to make back the money that they might lose in the market. Older people, well, time gets shorter and you can't make it back. That's why you got to be a little more conservative. Okay, if you want to get a hit on the stock market, bonds the word. And please, when an executive steps down without an explanation, sell, sell, sell. And stick with Kramer. Before you can be a good investor, you need to be a realistic investor. There are far too many people in this game who are not realistic. Either they allow their emotions to cloud their judgment, or they allow themselves to be surprised by the inevitable. Let's start with the inevitable you'd think people would get comfortable with the idea that stocks can go down, right? After the dozens of corrections, meaningful pullbacks, we've had over the last 20 years, you think we get used to the process. If people were reasonable, if we were a realistic species, you'd assume that we would say something like, hey, let's prepare for the inevitable correction because it could be right around the corner. Yet aside from the permanent bears, who we think we're always due for a pullback, most people act like every correction is a total shocker type of thing it never happens. So every time the stock market goes down, there's a huge contingent of people who seem totally stunned. <laughs> just caught by surprise. You know what? That's a bad attitude. To me the corrections, well, you know what they're like they're like the rain. I know that rain's inevitable. So do you. I expect it to rain. I prepare for it. When the rain comes, I am ready, ski daddy. I got an umbrella or a coat or I stay indoors. That's how you need to approach the possibility of a pullback. Sooner or later, we're going to get one, As so best to keep some cash ready on the sidelines, just in case that time turns out to be now. That's what we do for Action Alerts by charitable Trust. Of course, plenty of corrections happen at allegedly unexpected times. In recent years, we've had a lot of major declines that were preceded by terrific up days during which we made lots of money and everything looked peachy. In January of 2018, the stock market roared higher. People were acting like it had an unstoppable rally. But in February, the averages, they got obliterated. Why do I mention this? Because the time to be most worried about a looming correction is the moment when nobody else is concerned. That's when we get those brutal, supposedly unexpected declines, when everyone is euphoric. I used to have a rule in my old hedge fund. When I made 2% in a day on the upside, 2%, I knew I was too exposed. That's the word you use. I knew I was too long. I knew I had too much stock. I knew that my portfolio would kill me if we caught a storm. So as the market lifted, or if my performance was swinging too much to the upside i pulled back, sometimes furiously selling sell, 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 sell. right into strength to prepare for the big down day that had to be right around the corner. Sometimes the correction never came, and I had to swallow my pride days later and buy back the stock that I sold. But when we did get hit with a major sell-off, my hedge fund outperformed by so much that my clients thought I was a genius. I wasn't a genius. It wasn't genius at all. It was discipline. It was preparation. Plus, because I'd taken something off the table in order to raise cash, I'd be able to use that money to buy all sorts of high-quality stocks into the weakness that I so often preach to you. Look, we may not be able to predict when a storm is going to strike, but we do have barometric readings that can be helpful, immensely helpful. Yep. if corrections are like rain, then where should you get your weather report? You know what? I pay for something. That's right. I like to follow the proprietary standard and poor oscillators, a terrific indicator that tells us when the market is getting overbought or oversold. Whenever this oscillator registers plus five or above, that tells me we've come up too far too fast to the point where it's gotten dangerous. So to me, a plus five reading means you need to pull back aggressively and wait for correction. What do I mean by pull back aggressively? If you're nimble, admittedly a big if, you might want to ring the register on about half of your portfolio. Yeah, that's right. Not half the stocks, but half the shares in each position. That way, you'll have a ton of cash on the sidelines that you can use to buy back your favorite stocks at lower levels when the storm hits. Even if you're not at all nimble, you should be selling something to raise some cash when that oscillator, again, that I bought from the S&P, five, uh, S&P company, hits plus five. And look, I understand. Maybe you just want to take a little off, but people were aggressive want to take a lot off because that doesn't happen very often. By the same token, when the oscillator hits minus 5, it means the market is incredibly oversold. In that situation, we've usually come down so far so fast that we're due for at least a short-term bounce. It's worked like that for years. That's a good place to put your cash to work if you haven't already, by that point, it's the life cycle of a sell-off. Worst case scenario, there's no storm, stocks go higher, and you underperform the averages because you have such a large cash position. I'll admit that's a real risk, but look at it this way. Using this methodology at my hedge fund, I gave my investors a compound 24% return after all fees. That was more than twice what the S&P 500 would have given them over the same period. As I see it, that's pretty strong evidence that avoiding losses on big down days more than makes up for the possibility of missing some partial gains on the big up days. Now, let's talk about the other component of realistic investing. Yes, you need to accept that meaningful sell-offs are inevitable, like bad weather. But you also need to stop yourself from making investment decisions based on misleading emotions. And the worst of those emotions is hope. Hope. Whenever I hear the word hope as in, I hope that doom stock du jour will come back to where I bought it so I can sell it without taking a loss, I get furious. Always remember that hope is not part of the equation. Repeat after me. Hope is not part of the equation. Don't hope for anything. Hope is emotion, pure and simple. And this is not a game of emotion, or at least not your emotions. Every stock you own, because you hope it goes higher, is another position in your portfolio that's not being filled by a stock you believe will go higher. Yet I hear hope constantly. That's fine if we're talking about religion or sports. You know the coaches of some of these come-from-behind NCAA men's basketball teams keep their players motivated through hope. But in the stock business, hope, it's a mistake. Why? Because it's the plant's reason, especially when we're talking about stocks that trade in the single digits. You tell yourself, hey, I bought this at $5. Now it's at $4. I hope it goes back to $5. Then I'll sell. How hard could it be to go from $4 to $5, right? Wrong! No company ever sets out to have a single-digit stock. Most companies will fight tooth and nail to keep their stocks from going into single-digit territory. So when you find something that sells for just a few bucks, the market has already rendered a harsh judgment. When you let hope become part of the equation, you can end up holding these low quality pieces of paper, waiting for something that will likely never happen. Forget hoping, and forget waiting for higher prices. I say the thing to do is to cut your losses and move on to a stock you can actually see can see going higher. In other words, a stock that you have done the work and believe will go higher. And it's not because of hope, but because of reason. The bottom line, it pays to be realistic in this business, so prepare yourself for corrections. Big pullbacks are like, great, they're inevitable. And whatever you do, don't make stock-picking decisions based on hope. You need to invest in the real world, not in a fantasy land created by your own hopes and dreams. Let's go to Dick in Virginia. Dick! Hi, Jim. I love your show. I've listened, learned, and profited from your advice. Thank you. And and I have a general question about retirees and the stock market. I'm now 72 years old, retired, and wondered, even though I am well diversified in most of your favorite stocks, I cannot risk a large market correction. I might not have enough time to recover. The stock market is the best vehicle for wealth building. Should I consider de-risking my portfolio, by adding bonds or bonds equivalents, in, even though we're in a, a rising interest rate environment, or get rich carefully by being well diversified with stocks. I think okay. it, at 73, uh, I think you don't have many, many years, but I think you should uh, uh, raise some cash. Uh, I wouldn't I would say even I'm not sure about your work status, but someone 73 to have 25, 30 percent cash. Remember, I believe that we're going to lead much longer lives than most people think. Uh, 25, 30 percent would be fine in short term cash. okay? because rates are going higher and then we'll deal with it. Let's go to Pat in Colorado, please. Pat.
0: Hi, Jim. This is Pat from beautiful, beautiful Colorado. My question is this. I owe $189,000 on my mortgage. I'm concerned about a severe market correction. Sometime back, you said they usually happen about once every 10 years. I have enough money in my mutual funds and accounts to pay it off now, but should I face the tax ramifications of adding $189,000 to my income next January? Thanks.
1: Um, Tax things, I usually say you got to speak to your uh, tax accountant to be able to be sure. Um, I do think that you're – look, that's – let's put it this way. I think that that each to each his own on that particular kind of thing. But I will say that we've had corrections more frequently than 10 years. And that's really the issue. I do expect them a lot more frequently these days because we've got a much more volatile market that's been up a lot over multiple years' time. All right, let's be real. It pays to be real. Realistic. That is. Mad Money is back after the break. Jim Cramer, you're one of my heroes.
0: I look forward to your show every weeknight. Thank you so much for helping beginning investors like me.
1: When you talk about the market, I just believe that you're spot on.
0: Oh, I love it. Thank you so
1: much. Every night we watch you, I have learned and earned. You don't need me to tell you that the Internet has been kind of a double-edged sword. That's true in every area of life, including investing. Sure, the web makes everything more convenient. You have all sorts of information available at the push of a button, something that was unimaginable when I got started in this business. It was much harder to do the homework in the old days. It took real effort. These days, everything is searchable. But for all of the ways in which the Internet makes the process easier, it also creates new problems. And when we have new problems, we need new rules to help contain them. For example, you absolutely have to be able to explain your stock picks to another human being. If you can't do that, you have no business buying the stock in question. Here's the thing. In the old days, this rarely came up. But the rise of the Internet took away one of the most important breaks on the process, one of the most important warning systems, which is talking to another person about what you want to buy. It used to be that you had to talk to a broker. Now, with the stroke of a key, you can buy the, let's say, a uh, stock of Workday or a Square without ever having to tell another person why you're doing so. Why is that an issue? Why do you need to explain this stuff to someone else, anyone else? It doesn't have to be professional, by the way. It could be anybody, preferably an adult, but you can fall back on explaining it to your kids if you have to. Buying stocks is a solitary event too solitary. But we're all prone to making mistakes, sometimes big ones. To err is human. If you want to cut down on these mistakes, you should force yourself to articulate to someone else, not just yourself, why you like a stock. Do you know how they make their money? Do you know how their earnings are supposed to look? If you don't, then you're setting yourself up for trouble. I always see this problem, particularly in biotech, including many of the questions, uh, you know, lightning round that people ask about it. So many people own biotech stocks without even having the vaguest understanding of what the underlying companies do how they could possibly turn a profit. I urge you to be able to articulate a thesis for owning every stock in your portfolio to someone, anyone. Think of it as a test to make sure you've actually done the homework. That way, if the stock gets slammed, you'll know whether to cut and run or buy more. If you don't actually know what you own, believe me, you're going to get slaughtered on the next decline. And there's always a next decline. When I was at my hedge fund, I always made my employees sell me the stock, literally sell it to me like a salesperson before I would buy it. If you're in a position where you're picking stocks yourself, get someone to listen to you and let you articulate your reasoning. That's what's so important. I also like to ask uh, people, what's going to make this dog go up? What's the Catalyst. Or, have we missed the move in this overvalued stock that's up 100% already this year? You know, I get a lot of those questions, too. And, of course, what's your edge? These are all important questions. If you can't answer them, you shouldn't be buying. And, look, the ability to make hasty decisions is not the only thing you need to be wary of on the web. There's something else you need to be aware of. The Internet, has vastly increased the power of the Wall Street promotion machine. Now, I've long believed that home gamers and professionals alike simply don't have enough respect for this this promotion machine. I, on the other hand, recognize that when Wall Street falls in love with a stock, it will go much further than anyone expects in its efforts to hype that stock to high heaven. Consider the case of Valiant, okay? which uh, is changing its name, but Valiant, the big pharmaceutical roll-up that was one of the most heavily promoted stocks of the last decade. Its shares soared to the $200, and actually, and then some, on acquisition after acquisition as analysts routinely raised numbers. Why? Because management would slash costs and raise prices. But when the political environment changed, the analysts turned on Valiant and the numbers fell apart. Plus, to make matters worse, it turned out that the company had embraced a bunch of shady practices to bolster its results. Within a few months, the darn thing had plunged from the mid-200s to the mid-20s. It took Valiant almost two years to bottom. And before then, it fell all the way to the single digits. And on the way back, it became uh, Balsh Health. Whatever, change the name too. The thing is, Valiant should never have been trading above $200 in the first place. The only reason the stock had reached those levels to begin with, considering the endless pyramiding of new companies on old, was because the analyst promotion machine was so darn powerful, and the web amplifies the reach. So anytime you see nearly unanimous bullishness from the analyst community on, on potentially dubious merchandise, I think you got to beware. You should beware. In the words of Public Enemy, please. Don't believe the hype. One last thing, and this is really true of all media, both online and offline. Whether you're watching TV or a webcast, it pays to be a critic. Yep, it may sound crazy for the host of a cable TV show to make this argument, but you can't believe everything you hear on television. Lots of times executives say whatever they want on air, knowing they can get away with it. Lots of times fund managers come on air and tout their holdings, and sure, they have to disclose when they own something, but they rarely tell you whether they're in it for the long term or the short term, and boy, does that ever make a big difference. You need to accept this as a given. My general approach is that when you hear on TV, probably right. But no more than that. Same goes for the web, except you have to be a lot more careful because there's a ton of junk information, and uninformed commentary online. That's just the world we live in. So repeat after me, just because someone says it on TV doesn't mean it's true. I hate to say it, but you're being naive if you simply believe everything you hear. That's one reason why we only bring high-level executives on demand the money. They can still mislead you. But if the CEO of a public company outright lies about how their business is doing, let's just say their legal bills will really start that up. But generally speaking, you see a lot of money managers coming on television for a variety of legitimate reasons. These guys aren't always well vetted. And often managers can't help themselves when it comes to being promotional. So here's a good rule of thumb: If a money manager is on TV and he's moving his lips, he's probably talking his book. When someone comes on and says that some plunging stock is a buy, do you think, hmm, that sounds like an opportunity? No. Instead, you should wonder, he must be really stuck in that pig. Bottom line always be able to explain your stock picks to another human being and never take anything on faith in this business. Not from the analyst community and not, well, let's just say from the money managers who love to come on TV and talk their book. Jimmy in Delaware, Jimmy! Hey, Jim, how are you doing? I am doing well. How about you, sir? I'm doing great. My name is also Jimmy.
0: <laughs> well,. Like- So I had a question regarding um, whether it's better for somebody who's getting into stocks to whether they should go in with general knowledge or they should take the time and learn more. Because I'm currently 19 and I have a lot of money in like cryptocurrencies and I've been making money there. And I want to diversify
2: my investments but I don't know much about stocks and so would you suggest? that me buying general companies that I know about is a good thing or a bad thing, or that I should take okay, the time I, and learn
0: I think it's a
1: great lot. question, Jimmy. It depends on whether... Uh, I like to have the first investments be index funds. And particularly if you don't have time to do the uh, homework, which I've described a lot as I listen to the conference call, reading through the documents, seeing some analyst research, then I really think you should be in in, in an index fund. It's no surrender. okay? And if you build up that stake and you're still interested in buying stocks and wanting to do a little homework, then I think it's okay. But to not have uh, a lot of knowledge and buy a stock, I think that's a recipe for defeat. Can I go to Denise in Minnesota, please? Denise. Hey, Jim, booyah, and
0: thanks for all of your hard work for us.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Say, Jim, um, can you explain Dutch auctions and why a company has
1: them and what a shareholder... Um, should do about them. Well, that's a company trying to show you basically that they think the stock's worth more than it is and they're buying the stock up high and typically what you want to do is you want to tender to it. You're not going to be able to get all of your stock done. You'll get the rest of the stock back but it's a nice way to make a little money and I think companies that do it are showing that they have tremendous belief in themselves and the last one that I really love was the old Jordan Martin Franklin did a Dutch fender It was really good for everybody, All right? Always be able to explain your stock picks to another human being and never take anything on faith in this business. More of my rules of engagement and your tweets after the break, so stick with Kramer. Smart, you are, no matter how well informed, no matter how lucky, sooner or later you're going to make some suboptimal stock picks. It happens to the best of us. Every portfolio has a few duds in it. The true difference between a good investor and a bad investor is how you handle your losers. People seem to have a natural aversion to selling your losers. Professionals and amateurs alike hate doing it. They keep hoping, operating under the assumption that a sinking stock is wrong in its direction. They rationalize that the weakness or lack of interest they see will be fleeting and that people soon will recognize the value of their stock, the one that's in question. That's all well and good until you need money. Maybe you want to raise some cash because your portfolio's gotten a little too stock heavy. Maybe you have some real-life expenses that require you to put together a lot of money in a hurry. Maybe you're a money manager with some investors want their money back. That's always tough, right? Go, You ever read Confessions of a Street Addict? Holy cow. I got a whole chapter about that one. Well, then, how do you decide what to sell? This is where the tendency to hold on to our losers shows its sinister side. A lot of investors would prefer to sell their best-performing holdings rather than their worst performers. Yep, they will sell their winners to subsidize the losers! You then get a self-fulfilling spiral as the bad stocks stay bad. They usually keep going down, and with fewer winners, your performance will get even worse. This is particularly dangerous... Hedge fund manager, because bad performance triggers yet more redemptions from your clients. And if if you keep selling winners to give the money back, it creates a vicious cycle down. Individuals do the same thing. You only have a finite amount of capital to invest, right? Rather than take your medicine, the loss, you know, take a loss. Far too many people prefer to hang on to their worst performers. Thus, my rule, never subsidize losers with winners. My advice to anyone who is stuck in the position is quite simple. Sell the losers and wait a day. If you really want them back, go buy them back the next day. But once they're out of your portfolio, i got to tell you, I doubt that you'll even be tempted to buy back that stock. By the same token, you can't keep hanging on to a low quality stock just because you're hoping for a takeover. Oh, that's a real good idea. Look, I get it. Nothing's more exciting than a takeover, nothing's as lucrative. You can put on a lifetime's worth of gains in a day from a takeover. So people go to great lengths to try to capture these moves. That includes buying a lot of bad companies and hope that they catch a bid. Funny thing about bad companies, they really do get bids. In reality, typically what gets acquired are great companies with cheap stocks, not crummy companies with stocks that seem cheap but are, in fact, pretty expensive. Yet so many people buy this junk merchandise because they think a takeover will save them, which brings me to my next rule. Never speculate on takeovers of companies with bad fundamentals. The odds are that you'll end up owning something that you could go down much more than you ever thought, even as it is very limited upside. Even if a a bad company gets a takeover, it might end up coming at a much lower price than what you initially paid for the stock. That's the thing about bad companies. Their stocks tend to go lower, deservedly. You can do much better buying a well-run company that's in good shape, Uh, and can still get a takeover bid than you can for buying a company that's doing poorly and thus unlikely to get a bid. It makes sense. Not many bad companies get acquired because not many managers can turn bad companies into good ones. So don't wait around with a company with lousy fundamentals to be taken over. You could be waiting a very long time. If you just moved on, you could have bought the stock of a high-quality company that's likely to give you much better performance. In a well run company, you can get away with speculating on a takeover because even if there's no deal, you have other ways to win. And when the stock of a good company goes down, you can confidently buy more into weakness. That's not something you can do with a company that's gone from bad to worse while you were waiting irrationally for lightning to strike. The bottom line, never sell your winners to subsidize your losers. If you need to raise money for whatever reason, just take the darn loss and sell something that's underperforming. And absolutely do not speculate on takeovers in companies that have deteriorating fundamentals. If a possible takeover is the only reason you have for liking a stock, that's not something you should own. Stick with Kramer. This is the most interactive show on television. I like to brag about having the smartest audience there is. That's you, Crave America. Let's get to some of your tweets. First up, a tweet from at bull flags. Watching Iron Man with Son forgot at Jim Kramer lives in the hashtag Marvel Universe. That tweet's awesome. Oh, yeah, that was just fun. I mean, I broke that cup. It was one take. It was really kind of crazy. And uh, I am forever indebted to the fabulous people, including Jon Favreau, that do those movies. And here's a tweet from Big Dude Making Big Mo Vess. Says at Jim Kramer. I'm a new investor, less than three months in. I've always been a great saver. But how do I develop discipline as an investor? All right, here's what you want to do. As an investor, why don't you just buy small, okay? This is what we do for ActualWorksPlus.com for the club. And then if the stock comes in, you've got more room. But I want you to do it so that you don't, uh, the discipline is going to make it so that you're not going to be able to necessarily make as much money as you'd like. But we're trying to cut off our losses. And that's why we start small. Okay, now a tweet from at dari What Was that, like your pin number or something? Jim Kramer, do you ever sleep? I see you on TV early in the morning and very late at night, and the answer is I rarely do sleep, and I have pulled a huge number of all-nighters within the last three years. I wish that weren't the case, but it is true. And now a tweet from at nullity. Inf- at Jim Kramer, very much looking forward to some perspective tonight. Is there such a thing as market inertia? With the amount of money moving in the market, is this like steering the Titanic versus a jet ski, mad tweets uh, built from GFX? No, it's not. And I'll tell you why. We don't have that much money coming in. I mean, literally, the money's been going out. So the fact that the market's been going up is really just a testament to the fact that there's this core group of people who are not leaving. They're being just like Warren Buffett. They're putting a huge amount of money in index funds, and that's okay. That's not inertia. That's believing in America and believing in progress. I have no problem with it. Now a tweet from at Mike Monroe and W at Jim Kramer. Thank you for being the voice of reason and keeping our sanity amongst all this market craziness. Don't know what we do without you. Hashtag #JimCramer tweets. Hashtag Jim Kramer, Hashtag money, Hashtag Cramer. Well, thank you. Look, my goal is to make it so people don't freak out. All right? There were times when I would tell you, listen, you do have to go. And those have happened when there's systemic risk, meaning risks where you can't assess whether the system's going to hold. But most of the risks we see are really just market risks that are not in sync with how the strength of the country and the strength of the companies. So I will warn you if I think that things are really coming unglued. But otherwise, my job is to try to put it in perspective. Thank you so much. That's a very nice uh, tweet. They're all nice. Next, we have a tweet from At Common Stock. OMG, Jim Cramer was part of Jeopardy! question. I would have totally got that answer right. My daughter, my youngest daughter, just loved that, too. I mean, she's, ah, oh, Dad. Dad's made it. Uh, kn- and now she knows I have a show. Thanks, Cramerica. We really do have fun. Stick with you. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to find it just for you. Right here on Mad Money, I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you next time.